Welcome to The Future Built Smarter, a podcast in which iMeg engineers discuss innovative and trend-setting building and infrastructure design with architects, owners, and others in the AEC industry. I'm your host, Joe Payne, and as usual with me today is Mike Lawless. Mike is our Director of Innovation, working out of our St. Louis office. Mike, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Exciting topic today. Excited to talk to Keith and you about, about electric vehicles. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, we're, uh, we're, we're talking here on Tuesday after Memorial Day. So um, Mike, hope you had a, had a good long weekend. I hear you're playing a little golf. Absolutely. I played some golf and I think some of us that got back from road trips probably. Now, for me, it was a, a conventional vehicle, but I bet for a lot of people, they, drove, they took their electric vehicles on a road trip this weekend. So I imagine so. We're going to see a lot more of that. Our our guest today is uh, Keith Vandenbush, and uh, Keith is our client executive in our Detroit office, and he is also the market leader for our automotive research and development team. Keith, how you doing? I'm doing great, Joe. Great. And I, so Keith, you just real briefly here, you and I talked before and, uh, uh, you, you didn't just decide to get into, uh, the automotive industry just all on your own. You kind of had a lot of uh, family background involved in that too, correct? I did. Both my dad worked in the auto industry for 38 years and both my brothers, um, worked in it for, uh, over 30 years. And, uh, I myself, uh, came right out of college and jumped right into the automotive industry and, uh, have, been a, a big part of it um, in, in all sectors. So you've seen uh, and heard of all kinds of changes in, in the industry from growing up uh, and uh, getting into the work yourself. And so now we're we're coming on the biggest change in a long time with electric vehicles or EVs. And uh, what's that look like to you in, in the in next few years? Well, uh, if you read some of the forecasts and, and, and heard some of the announcements of some of the bigger OEMs lately, I mean, they are going full tilt um, with both R&D and uh, manufacturing, which we're a big part of uh, helping in that engineering. Uh, and, you know, some are projecting 100% EV production in 10 years, which is wow. not that far away. Wow. And so the production part, Am I right in saying that the production and the R&D, that's, that's kind of the relatively easier part of the whole thing, right? I mean, that compared to being ready for once the cars are on the road? Correct. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of uh, engineering tasks and, and uh, things to overcome in solving, uh, you know, R&D and, and manufacturing. But um, it's it's really not that different than switching when we converted uh, some different type of uh, petroleum vehicles in the past. It's really more when you look at uh, on the consumer side and the infrastructure side. Um, I, I think those are going to be the constraints uh, in just letting loose all these products. I mean, once you've solved the R&D and the manufacturing, it's really a matter of how much you want to ratchet that up. So on the recipient side, you know, we've got to make sure we have an infrastructure and, the, you know, there's a demand from the consumer to take on these uh, vehicles. So, Keith, I mean, I know you, these numbers are probably, I think a lot of times come pretty easily to you, but how, I mean, how many cars a year are they, are the, are we selling in the U.S. right now? I mean, what, it's 17 million or so. What's, what's that number? Yeah, the U.S. has had a strong market, even through COVID. Uh, we, we maintain 16, 17 million uh, units for a good five years now. Uh, if I kind of looked over the 15-year average, it's probably uh, maybe 15 million, you know, with a couple downturns. But uh, very strong market in the U.S. And 
when we look at the electric vehicles, even though it's a small percentage uh, in the last couple of years, it is growing quite rapidly. And when you look at the, you know, manufacturing production output uh, forecasted, we're going to quickly uh, reach 50% uh, in the next 10 or, or 12 years. So how, you know, so this year, you know, so it's, if the market's 17 million, you know, how many new electric vehicles are going to go on the, on the roads this year? I mean, it's a, it's a still a pretty significant number. True. I mean, there's some forecasts as strong as a million units this year. Right. Uh, it's really going to be, you know, how well it's received, how, how well, you know, the chargers are put in place and the consumer is confident that he will be supported in buying that vehicle. Right. So you've got a, you know, this year, a million buyers having a new electric vehicle in their home. And then, you know, if you just extrapolate that out, it's pretty quickly. We're going to have a lot, a lot of vehicles on the road, a lot more than what we have now. And a lot of, as you know, one of the things we're going to talk about is that infrastructure piece and how do we support that commercially and on longer trips, but also, you know, in, in the homes, you know, how, how does that electric vehicle interact with the, you know, your, the electric system for your house as well? Correct. Is it worthwhile to just briefly touch on, you know, what's driving the explosion? Is it, is it the, um, you know, lower emissions? Is it other things? Or the, you know, what exactly is, is making this all kind of happen now? Well, the emissions in, you know, due to uh, uh, helping climate change is obviously the, the biggest and was always in the forefront of moving in this direction. But I think we're starting to realize other benefits. Uh, it's a cleaner way of uh, producing uh, energy. You know, when you look at petroleum, you know, trucking it, you know, all across the roads and the accidents that happen and uh, things like that. Um, there's no question that having it delivered, you know, energy to your house in a wire is a nice, clean way of receiving energy. Um, so that's been, you know, a, a newer uh, benefit that some of the consumers are noticing as well as the transportation, you know, those heavy trucks, getting those off the road, uh, things like that. I mean, it could be a simpler drive mechanism too, right? Keith, I mean, you, you've replaced your internal combustion engine with, with motors. You know, so it's a different, it's a different vehicle. Uh, there's different performance opportunities there, but also on the testing and the R&D side, I mean, that, that changes, I'm assuming, you know, test cells and those things, how you test these vehicles before they go on the roads too, right? And that's an area that, that you have a lot of experience in. Correct. Um, so when you look at a, a R&D lab, um, we're now working with different energy sources um, in testing the vehicles and the, you know, the engines and things like that. You know, we're switching over to electric. We've got batteries to deal with now. We've got, you know, safety precautions for the batteries and the amount of electricity that we have in the cells. So we have to deal with those, you know, and, and you have to deal with them on the manufacturing side also. Keith, so we talked about the R&D side and the, the charging part of this, but let's talk about how it's fun to, to drive these vehicles. I mean, the acceleration you can get. I mean, I know here at work, one of my friends, you know, his his son learned to drive in an electric vehicle, and he, he switched over and had to drive a gas vehicle and was surprised that he just didn't automatically get acceleration. You know, there's that lag in, in a typical uh, internal combustion engine, whereas electric vehicle, the power is there right away. 
Correct. There is so much more torque in an electric vehicle. I mean, you can get off the start much quicker um, and have so much more uh, uh, energy right from the start in an electric vehicle. Uh, the other surprising thing is these electric vehicles don't have near as many parts. You don't have a transmission. Um, there's a lot less uh, integral parts that have to support a combustible engine. So you're really looking at four main components in a vehicle today. You've got the battery, you've got the electric motor, you've got the shell, and you've got the computer. You know, there, there's obviously other side little computers and things like that, but those are the main four components that you're looking at in these vehicles, which requires a lot less space. Yeah, I think the new Ford truck has a trunk in the front, right, where the engine would go. Now you can store store things. Correct. And I know Joe Biden at least thought it was fairly fast, too, when he, <laughs> when he drove it. So I don't know if that's, you know, that's probably not a measurable thing, but at least he enjoyed enjoyed getting off the line in the new, the new electric you know, pickup. Yeah. And they're quieter. Yeah. And they're quieter. And which, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion along the lines of, you can't hear you can't hear the vehicles coming as, as much as you could in the past as well. I guess you know one of the things that you talked about the consumer being comfortable with the electric vehicles. One of the things is so there's a, a limitation on range, right? And it's you know give or take 300 miles in a lot of vehicles. So if you've got you know delivery trucks or certain things along those lines that are maybe more commercial, they're making loops. They're they're traveling a path, and you can arrange for charging at certain periods of time, or they can make their, their rounds for the day charge and then, you know, do their work the next day. So there's, you know, potentially an easier way to charge, but Memorial day weekend, you're driving 600 miles to see your family. You don't want to stop for an hour while you charge necessarily. You don't want to add an hour to that trip. So I guess Keith, what are you seeing as far as how, how is that being dealt with? You know, how are people um, making the charging, accessible and making it so it doesn't really add that time to the trip. Well, we're helping a number of our clients install charging stations throughout the nation. And one of the things that's interesting is it takes one quarter of the time to charge your battery half the amount. And it takes the other three quarters of time to charge the second half. So a lot of times they only need 30 minutes to charge half the battery. And they're willing to accept that. They really don't want to go past 30 minutes. So some of the clients are creating waiting areas where they can work on their laptop or their computers. Uh, there's even been talk about combining coffee stations so that they can, on a long trip, they can pop in, get 50% charge in 30 minutes, do, you know, catch up on their emails and stuff, which will, you know, help any, uh, you know, uh, interference on the road with your phones, uh, keeping you uh, re responding to emails off the road, and they're ready to go. Um, so, But what's also interesting is 95% of the consumers really don't travel more than 300 miles in a day. So we're talking about a very small population that is going to drive these long distances. And if we can just make an a, uh, infrastructure that can allow them for a quick charge and be on their way, I think we'll have the problem solved. And Keith, how much of that 30 minute 
uh, half, you know, 50% charge is based around limiting your, your strain on the infrastructure. Because when I think about, you know, electric vehicle battery, you know, it could, char it could power a house for five days. You know, now you're thinking about taking two days worth of power to your house and compressing it into 30 minutes and putting it into, into your battery. I mean, how much of that is a balance between time to charge and electric infrastructure cost? Oh, I think the fast charging, i.e. being on the road on a long trip, is going to be the heaviest load on the infrastructure. I think those type of situations where you'll have a bank of fast chargers will require a dedicated uh, high voltage lines with transformers uh, to service those quick charges on your house or even Amazon charging overnight, less of an issue because you're, you know, it's a, it's a smaller trickle of charge, if you will, and you can kind of spread that out. And a good thing is that's usually done on a lower rate structure, so that's good. But it's those fast chargers when people need to really get a boost in a short amount of time that's going to put the biggest strain on the infrastructure. Yeah, and we've seen even regulations-wise, you know, here in St. Louis, if you, if you build a parking garage in the city, they've they've increased the electric uh, the electrical requirements to that garage where now your service size is now four times larger than it would have been previously because you have to plan for you know X number of electric vehicle charging stations when you build that garage. When we start to extrapolate that out, as you said across across the country and even across slower charging in, in parking garages, that's just a lot of load on the electric system. So one of the things that I guess I'm curious about is, you know, solar and PV and batteries and how how we can link those together to, to help with this vehicle charging. I mean, I think Joe and you both talked about how environmental impact is part of this. Well, if, if the way that we have to meet this peak electric demand we start to put on the grid is through, you know, older, you know, more um, fossil fuel type power plants and we're not achieving that goal as well as maybe we would have so what i guess are, what are you seeing keith on the pv side of things and linking that into these electric vehicle charging well pv is becoming very popular for a uh, awning type uh, parking arrangement where you've got uh, good exposure to a high amount of sunshine for the year you know california arizona texas florida all uh working towards a combination of PV and car charging. Now it does work a little better on trickle charging um, because there's a large square footage that you're gonna need for those chargers. But a lot of times, you know, that's a perfect a application for a commercial building where somebody's gonna be uh, having their car parked for a number of hours. Um, so no question. And just taking that load off the grid allows for more, more load to go for quick chargers. So it, it's all a big balance, um, but there's no question that PV can support and, and reduce um, the amount of draw needed for charging. And I just think, you know, and, I, and some of this is here and, and some of it maybe isn't available yet, but I just think about, if you think about we're adding a million vehicles to the road a year, and the, if you total up the available battery storage of all those vehicles, I mean, that's a huge uh, opportunity to transfer when when power is, is used on the grid. You know, if you think about, you know, your car is connected to your house and you look at when everybody gets home from work, there's a huge spike in electric usage. And there's issues with that in, in some areas of the country. Your car could potentially be linked to a smart grid and provide that 
kind of shaving the peak of that power that happens when everybody gets home from work. You know, I just think that's a, a huge opportunity. And then on the simpler side of that is, and we saw this in Texas, was people powered their houses from their from their hybrid trucks. You know, they were they had all those those power issues down there, and they were able to plug plug their appliances into their truck battery and use that to to get by through that situation. And I think I think we're going to see see more and more of that as time goes on. And I think the other part of that is the the batteries, Keith. I mean, the batteries in the cars, you got to make sure you do the appropriate things to keep them safe, you know, in the manufacturing process. But then even, you know, that battery storage and electric vehicle charging areas that can help shave the peak of that electrical load too. And, you know, charge the battery up when you, when you can, and then um, use that to discharge and, you know, more quickly charge your electric vehicle batteries. No question. Batteries can be the buffer for the draw on the system. Uh, one other area that I think we got to keep in mind is, you know, there are, sometimes power outages, you know, they happen in California and we have them in the Midwest sometimes. So yeah, I think you're also going to see an increase in home uh, emergency generators. You know, they've been becoming more and more popular. You know, you can get the, you know, gas ones that uh, natural gas that uh, are directly connected to your house. Well, now uh, it can even be uh, helpful to charge your car, you know, to be out of power overnight. Um, isn't sometimes the worst thing, but you got to get up in the morning and go to work. And if you can't, you know, a car's not charged, you can't go to work. Do you think it would drive PV at the home then too? Because that, if you had PV at your house, obviously that serves the same purpose as a generator. Absolutely. But you're getting to the flip side of it. The battery is an opportunity to power the house during certain periods of time or during an outage, but then if you need to drive somewhere and you don't have power, that becomes an issue. You know, there's a lot of pros and cons. I think, you know, they had the, the pipeline, issue here lately and you know gas prices spiked and people ran out and bought all the gas that they could and if you had an electric vehicle in that time period in those areas of the country it was great because power was still there and, and pretty reliable as it as it is most of the time and they didn't have to worry about you know waiting in line at a gas station to get gas you know they could plug into their house at night or plug in at work and and continue to travel I guess the other thing that I think about, Keith, is if you're taking a trip, you know, there's 5% of people that are going to take trips. Have you seen any restaurants or any other sorts of businesses say, you know, listen, we're going to put charging stations in so that when people are on their trips, they can stop here, they can charge for an hour while they have something to eat or, or do some sort of activity. Have, you, have we seen anything in that area start to move? We are starting to see that, but more importantly, we're starting to see advertising for it. Uh, so don't be surprised. You don't see the billboard on the side of the highway that says, and we have five chargers. You know, we all know that it, whatever it takes to get that customer in the door is, is uh, you know, they'll be jumping at. What, what kind of investments are those re restaurants making there, Keith? I mean, are they, are they putting in a more robust infrastructure there? Or are they going with a little bit more of a slow charging approach or a combination? How are they, how are they dealing with that? They are going to with more of a slow charging because they figure that the people are going to be in eating for a half hour to an hour, and that's enough to you know help them either maintain their charge or, or even boost it a little and be on their way. They're not looking to charge their car for the day; they're just out and about. Um, but it, you know, sometimes it is some money, so it's it's through grants and uh, some of this infrastructure policy that's coming through, and, and the community is now starting to help fund. Uh, that's the local government community uh, help fund some of these um, chargers because they want to bring business into the 
community. So uh, the, it's they can get funding from a number of sources these days. Yeah, and I guess, you know, as we, I mean, we've talked about a number of things, I guess, we're, Keith, when you think about the future and electric vehicles and the charging, I mean, where do, where do you see, where are we headed as far as, you know, number of vehicles on the road? And then how does that extrapolate into the infrastructure? I guess, where do you, you know, if you look in the future 10 years from now, what are we all driving electric vehicles or, or how's that, how's that going to work? Oh, I think we'll, you know, it'd be interesting if we can uh, get to 50%, you're going to have, you know, the average consumer keeps his vehicle now um, 10 to 12 years. So you're always going to have the ones, you know, that are grandfathered still out there. Um, I think you're still going to struggle a little bit with um, the the bigger vehicles, the uh, construction type, you know, heavy duty pickup trucks and stuff. I think they'll hang on to petroleum uh, for a little bit longer. They, they can sometimes go job to job and have to go farther distances. But no question, uh, if you start with the uh, retirees slash baby boomers, um, you know, people that are just buzzing around to do some errands, they're going to jump to it right away. Um, uh, rebates will probably play a big part. I just heard, um, you know, uh, some of the different countries and the variety of rebates that are out there internationally. It was, it was really interesting. But um, I, I think we'll be at 50% in 10 years. And then it'll be interesting how long it'll take for the remaining 50%. It could be another 10 years. It could be another 20 or 30 but it'll definitely keep uh, moving downward, I think, as we go forward. I mean, there could be a day when the the current gas station that we've all used for most of our lives is kind of a relic of the past. And, and it's something that is maybe a specialty in the same way that electric vehicle chargers are now. I mean, I think, oh, yeah. I, I think Keith, I don't know about you, but it's it's pretty exciting. This is a, a big change in, in how we how we move around and how we fuel our vehicles and the environmental footprint. It's pretty exciting to, to be a part of that and help, help support that and move that forward. Absolutely. And you look around, I mean, I was just, I just picked up an electric weed whacker. So now I thought, gee, isn't it funny? I got electric weed whacker, electric um, leaf blower. I watched my neighbor cutting his lawn with electric lawnmower. Um, you know, those are just complimentary things, but we are moving in a number of areas towards, you know, the electric uh, battery storage uh, arena. And Mike, you uh, you talked uh, previously about this as an opportunity for uh, office buildings and, and how they can distinguish themselves from, you know, to, 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 to attract tenants, right? I mean, with this infrastructure or with uh, more people coming to work with electric vehicles, what they need to do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think as there's more electric vehicles, people are going to want to charge them at work as well. You know, and that gives them that little bit of redundancy. If they lose lose power at their home, you know, they have the opportunity to charge at work. It's going to go back to what Keith talked about is that power reliability is going to become more important. So some office buildings, the selling point could be we have electric vehicle charging stations. We also have redundant generators, so you'll always be able to power at our building. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities there, and I think it's going to become expected because, as Keith said, it's you still got to go home, you still got to get to work, no matter what happens with your power grid or the weather. You know, those things need to occur. So it's going to be it's going to be an amenity that's going to start to be expected. Well, hey, this has been a, a really good discussion today. Um, I'm probably one of those people that 
will be uh, due for uh, a new car in a few years. And that raises one question I have is the, the cost factor. Uh, Keith, do you have a like a like if I'm the person going to look for a electric vehicle in say two three years or four years, what how does that compare to buying a you know conventional automobile? Well, they've reached the uh, consumer price point that uh, they were targeting, which was thirty six thousand. So that's a hurdle already accomplished. Um, they think that the uh, consumer, you know, if they can hang on or even get below the thirty six thousand. That's a good price point. When you understand economics and know that you know the, the larger quantities will only bring down cost more, there's a good indication that these vehicles could get to thirty thousand or below thirty thousand, which is even better. So you know that historically hasn't happened where vehicles tend to you know follow uh, inflation or cost of living a little closer. Um, I think that that could be because it is a lot less parts. So I think that's gonna. Uh, probably be uh something that's going to open your eyes when you're at that um dealer lot comparing well i'm sure that uh i will compare i'm a (laughs) i'm a very a careful consumer but i'm i'm definitely one who i'm definitely interested in in taking that that leap there when the opportunity arises so i appreciate you being with us today keith um and uh to our listeners, uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. Uh, if you want to check out our previous podcast, you can go to our website, imegcorp.com, go to our resources page, and you'll find our podcast page. And you can listen to this or any of our other previous uh, recordings. And also, you can find contact information there for both Mike and for me. And we can put you in touch with Keith should you have any questions about today's podcast. And of course, you can also subscribe to the Future Built Smarter uh, on any podcast app you might use. We're out there. So you all have a good afternoon and rest of your day and uh, take care. Mm-hmm.